What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. And this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. It's Tuesday, July 5th. June, Senators Kristen Gillibrand and Cynthia Lummis introduced a sweeping Senate bill that would, if successful, attempt to regulate crypto assets. I don't think any bill can satisfy everyone, but I think this is a really great start because uh, our goals are simple. We want to create safety and soundness in the American market. We want transparency and accountability, and we want to have consumer protections. Influential crypto insiders hailed this proposal as a great starting point a reception that suggests it might be perceived as relatively friendly to the people it's supposed to be regulating in the digital asset community. Hillary Allen, a law professor at American University, is among those who think that the proposed legislation just doesn't go far enough, especially when it comes to consumer protection. She joins me now. Professor Allen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You have... I think if ever somebody were to invent a profile for somebody who feels, you know, like the right person to comment on financial regulation, it does seem to be the one that you have. You have written a book about fintech. You are a professor who sort of studies these things professionally or academically, at least. And you've had some pretty incisive commentary in the past couple of months about your concerns over, you know, financial stability and the threats that crypto appears to pose to financial stability. Can you say a little bit more about this proposed legislation from these senators and like what your first, second and maybe third reactions have been to it? I used to work for a law firm partner who, if your work was really terrible, he wouldn't try to salvage anything from it. He would just start and send it back with something at the top saying start over. And that was my initial reaction to this bill. There's not a lot in here to salvage. The second reaction was, you know, what are the politics going on behind this? It's very curious. I've never seen an industry so happy with proposed legislation that's intended to regulate them. It's almost like champagne corks were popping all over the crypto industry. So those were sort of my broad brush reactions. And then it got into sort of the the nitty gritty of the problems, and they're varied from taking jurisdiction away from the SEC um, over things that already fit the definition of securities to putting stable coins in the banking environment and potentially implicitly putting deposit insurance and government guarantees behind stable coins to creating regulatory sandboxes that would sort of reverse preempt federal legislation intended to protect investors and the stability of our financial system. It's a lot of problems. Well, you've named three very specific things (laughs) that I'd love for us to break down a little bit. And let's start from depository insurance and your concerns about that, because, you know, this is something that's often held up as, all right, if I'm a consumer, if I have money in a bank, 
I don't personally qualify for a two hundred fifty thousand um, dollar deposit insurance. I do not have any bank balances that are that are that high. But you know, the idea is, if my bank were to go under, I would at least be protected up to a certain amount. And there's no comparable protection for folks who may have their assets in crypto. Why is the way it's constructed, that protection is constructed in this bill, why is that a concern for you? Well, first of all, you know, I, I do want to say that my heart goes out to the people who are losing their money. You know, Celsius has just suspended redemptions and a lot of people are losing their shirts. And I'm seeing comments on Twitter saying things like, but this is insured, right? And people don't understand that they don't have any guarantee or insurance. And, and that is heartbreaking for the, the individuals. But what we need to think about is sort of the big picture when we insure something. And there are downsides to deposit insurance. So when deposit insurance was introduced in the 1930s, after you know a series of banking panics, there were a lot of economists who were worried about it because it can incentivize some bad behavior on behalf of the banks because they know that people won't be paying attention, they won't be watching their deposits. And so you know the banks can take more risks knowing that they can pocket the upside and the downside will be covered by the deposit insurance. So in the end, notwithstanding those concerns, they decided to implement deposit insurance anyway. And I think that was the right decision because of the importance of banks to how our broader economy functions. But if we're talking about stable coins, people keep talking about these being used for you know, payments. They're not used for payments for everyday goods and services. They're not very useful for payments for everyday goods and services. Where they're being used is to speculate in the decentralized finance space, which or DeFi, um, which is a fancy way of saying that they have created on the blockchain equivalents of a lot of financial products and services that we already have. But because they're on the blockchain, they're operating in an unregulated way. So if we are insuring stablecoins, if we're putting government guarantees behind stablecoins, we're essentially insuring people's speculative activity in the DeFi space. And that's not you know, building products and services. That's not employing people in the same way that we think of you know, traditional economic growth. So I'm very loath to put deposit insurance behind this very speculative space. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's less the idea that insurance equal bad and more the idea that insurance equal risk reward for an activity that, as you're describing it, doesn't seem to qualify to you as like economically valuable. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. You're essentially giving people a safety net to gamble um, in a way that doesn't create productive use for the rest of the economy. Are there other instances in this bill, you know, because you, you named a couple of other things where that's where your reaction is coming from, that these are creating incentives that may sow the seeds of whatever the next crisis is? Absolutely. And I've, I've written about this at length. There are so many parallels between what we're seeing in crypto now and what we saw in the lead up to 2008. Uh, the news from Wall Street has shaken the American people's faith in our economy. The situation with Lehman Brothers and other financial institutions is the latest in a wave of crises that have generated enormous uncertainty about the future of our financial markets. To be clear, I don't think an implosion of the crypto markets right now would cause a broader global financial crisis. But that's really about size and integration with the broader system rather than it being safer. 
what we're seeing with with crypto is, you know, we're seeing just a far reaching complexity that people can't process. And that makes panics more likely. It makes systems more fragile when you can't see the interconnections of the different parts of the system. We're seeing new ways of creating leverage because people can create tokens out of thin air and then use them as collateral for loans. We're seeing this rigidity, this, this you know, smart contracts, which are really just computer programs, but they run on the blockchain and they automate transactions. We're seeing that rigidity parallel what we saw with mortgage-backed securities in the lead up to 2008, where you, you know, there, there aren't the opportunities to renegotiate these deals when they're bad for both the consumers and for the system as a whole. And we've seen you know, a bunch of runs on stable coins in the last few weeks that look a lot like the runs that we saw on money market mutual funds in the past. But to your point, these runs don't seem to have that sort of systemic contagion effect that folks were worried about in 2008. Yet. Right. So that's the thing. So, uh, you know, there's, um, you know, it's a balancing act. You know, you don't want to rush and put government backing behind all of this stuff now because it won't have the systemic effect, I think, in its current iteration. The thing that concerns me most is that as this stuff starts to get integrated with the traditional financial system, which is happening, then we start seeing the tentacles of this stuff spreading into the traditional finance, broader economy. And then we're getting to a place where a bailout might be necessary. So proactively to prevent that from happening, I think the most important thing that can happen right now is to set up a separation between banking and crypto instead of encouraging their integration. Interesting. We'll be right back with American University law professor Hillary Allen for more analysis of the pros and cons of this big bipartisan piece of proposed crypto regulation. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. One thing you did mention, you said this on Twitter in one of your threads that you have been paying attention to is this idea of taxation as it relates to crypto. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So taxation for any lawyer is terrifying if they're, <laughs> if they're not a tax lawyer. Um, it's it's the one thing that, you know, I, I teach business law and I say your one job is to make friends with the tax lawyer so that you have someone to call when tax issues come up. And so the taxation around um, crypto assets is, you know, it, it is a very important issue that a lot of the people who are talking about crypto sort of deal with as an add-on. So the, the taxation experts that I have talked to said that this carves out a incredible, well, it is an incredible sort of carve out and giveaway for um, crypto that doesn't exist in other asset classes. And so that ties into this broader picture of why are we giving crypto more favorable treatment on every level than the existing laws accord? Why are we treating crypto securities as different and deserving of a lighter touch regime than regular securities? Why are we giving more preferential treatment to taxation 
on crypto. And I think it keeps coming back to this issue that I think if, if the most charitable reading of all of this is that there are a lot of politicians that and policymakers who don't want to be seen as anti-innovation. When I came to Washington, I found out that very few, if any, members of the Senate had an awareness of how big Bitcoin and other digital assets were becoming and that there was a vacuum of both interest and knowledge about this topic. And yet it was becoming more and more apparent that a framework for regulation was going to be needed. What this bill really says to me is that policymakers are not looking behind the curtain to see what's really going on here. So a lot of the technology that is being trumpeted as being so innovative is really, according to many tech experts, not particularly good. It doesn't scale well. It's slow. It's expensive. A lot of it's environmentally costly. Well, you have compared smart contracts, for example, which is just, you know, as you said, contracts that exist on the blockchain to mortgage-backed securities, you have compared various elements of DeFi to credit default swaps. And as somebody who used to cover both of those things a long time ago, I find those analogies very interesting because the big argument that their proponents made was this is about better risk mitigation. This is about using bleeding edge technology to solve you know, novel problems. And when it blew up, they were like, except under these very specific circumstances when everything <laughs> goes wrong at the same time. Yep. Yep, that's always it. I mean, especially if you're someone like me who pays a lot of attention to financial crises and systemic risks, it's all about the tail events. It's all about the low probability. Um, who could have very, seen this happening? Very high consequence events that are not as rare as people think they are. Um, you know, I grew up in Australia and all the swans there are black. Ha -ha. So. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Famously refusing the title of the book, Black Swan. Exactly. <laughs> What we and, and this is a comment that I've made a lot that it's just it surprises me how short memories are that that these these lessons that we should have learned from the 2008 crisis we have not learned and I think part of the reason why people haven't learned them is because what used to be just sort of a question of um, financial complexity now has this overlay of technological complexity. So to really dissect this and see why none of this is going to work in those tail events, you need to understand both the finance and the tech. And those are two very um, complicated areas. And so what you need, as I said, are both kinds of expertise. And that's why I think it's particularly valuable that, um, uh, uh, well, it started out with, I think, like 23 leading technologists, but then the, the letter was signed by over 1,500 other technologists around the world in a letter to Congress that was um, sent recently. Mm -hmm. They articulated the technological flaws here, and I'm contributing my expertise on the financial flaws of this. And when you put them together, you see that this is an inherently flawed system that isn't fit for purpose. This being crypto from your perspective, like the whole yeah, thing. The whole, really the whole thing. Um, and so what I would really like to see from policymakers is not a bill like this that accepts at face value the claims of innovation and financial inclusion, but actually interrogates those a little before 
giving away the store on things like securities regulation and, and tax. And I think the financial inclusion narrative is particularly pernicious here because we keep hearing that this will, you know, this will help the unbanked people who haven't. Well, um, I mean, Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey just uh, set up a center for educating kids in Brooklyn about the benefits of Bitcoin. Nothing could possibly go wrong. uh, Nothing could possibly go wrong. It's just heartbreaking. But, you know, this is rhetoric we've heard before. So in the lead up to 2008, subprime mortgages were going to be the thing that helped bring people who had been previously excluded from the housing market into the housing market. And in the end, it was predatory inclusion. People lost their homes, lost their money, et cetera. And it was the sort of the, the, the building blocks for a much broader systemic crisis. Right now, as I mentioned, I don't think the crypto assets are yet the building blocks for a systemic crisis because we don't have the integration with the mainstream financial system yet. But it's still predatory inclusion to my mind. So if you invested in Bitcoin after December of 2020, you would have lost all your money by now. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, that's that's everybody who's invested for the first time. Which, in the to be last clear, is a, a lot of people, right? There, there have been multiple surveys. I was just looking at a couple of these right before talking to you today. That between half and seventy percent, depending on how you slice it, of people who currently own Bitcoin invested between twenty twenty and now. Yep, and all of them are underwater. Every single one of them. And when you when you cite a statistic like that. It really emphasizes that the people who got in early on a lot of this crypto stuff are going to make a lot of money. And it's highly concentrated. This is, a you know, the people who've been in here since before 2020, there aren't that many of them. And a lot of them are very, very concentrated in terms of wealth. And then the newer arrivals, the people who've come in basically since the end of 2020, um, had smaller investments, but had, a you know, were not is able to absorb losses. And as I said, every single one of them is is underwater. Well, on that note, Professor Allen, I would like to thank you very much for joining me today. You've certainly given our listeners quite a lot to think about, and I will make sure that they know where to find you on the internet. Thanks so much. Pleasure. You can find Professor Hillary Allen on Twitter at Prof Hillary Allen. That's Hillary with one L, H-I-L-A-R-Y. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, I'm part of a generation that grew up with the internet, with social networks that long predated Facebook or Twitter, and with online identities that sometimes felt more authentic than my offline self. Experimenting with who you are online, especially if those identities are really different from how you present in the analog world, it's not a new concept. So it's no surprise that folks are using newish technologies like crypto and the blockchain to play with their self-expression. Some folks are even using blockchain-enabled structures to monetize these experiments with identity, including their gender presentation. For more on crypto and identity, Bloomberg reporter Emily Nicole and doctoral candidate and researcher Florence Smith-Nichols will join me on the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, and this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email your questions, comments, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. And you'll find us on Twitter at Crypto. 
The supervising producer of this episode is Vicky Vergolina. Associate producer is Ty Butler. Desta Wanderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Bloomberg's head of podcasts is Francesca Levy. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.